Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. No media organization was more enthusiastic in its unwarranted crusade against We Charity than the CBC, specifically Fifth Estate journalists Harvey Cashore and Mark Kelly. Their reporting escalated from recycling well-trodden issues around the CSSG to breaking laws in Kenya, and they ignored any evidence that would prove their hypothesis wrong. They had a story in mind, and they were going to tell it no matter how many donors pointed out the flaws in their research, or youth and employees spoke about their positive experiences, or forensic audits were produced. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the true story behind the CBC's reporting on We Charity. The Fifth Estate Just before Christmas 2020, Mark and Craig spent four hours answering questions from journalist Mark Kelly for an episode of The Fifth Estate that Kelly said would tell the entire 25-year story of We Charity. There was a measure of trust on the part of the Kilbergers. After all, the CBC is a public broadcaster financed largely by taxpayer dollars and it touts its commitment to journalistic principles of accuracy, balance, and fairness. The brothers understood there would be tough questions, but they were told by the CBC that this would also be an opportunity to remind viewers of all the good the organization had done and to put a period at the end of the sentence as it wound down its Canadian operations. But it quickly became clear that Kelly had other plans. Throughout the interview, his focus was squarely on the negative and sometimes even the absurd. For example, he said an organizer for We Day LA had told him that Mark Hilberger freaked out when he saw that the lineup of speakers included a transgender activist because he thought it would be problematic for Republican donors. Mark had already approved the lineup and the speech. And We Days routinely included speakers from the LGBTQ community. Kelly also asked if the organization monitored staff emails after that idea was put to him by Matthew Simone a former employee who worked at WE 15 years earlier. I can say with absolute certainty that we do not, have not, nor do we ever monitor the emails of staff. Dan Kuzmicki, WE's Director of Enterprise Services, confirmed in a statement. Most concerning to me was how little Kelly and his team including Fifth Estate producer Harvey Cashore, understood about the cultures and communities in which We Charity operated and the work the organization did on the ground. For instance, Kelly brought up the supposedly fake kitchen that Bloomberg reporter Natalie Obiko Pearson had asked about in her emails 
and later described in her lengthy article. He was told there was no truth to that rumor, but Harvey Cashore raised it again in a conversation with Mark and Craig in early January. This time, he was shown a picture of a substantial kitchen built of chiseled stone with a cement floor and piped clean water, proof that nothing had been slapped together to fool a donor. But he continued to protest. If it was a kitchen, he asked, why was there no refrigerator? The organization had to explain that rural Kenyans do not typically have refrigerators because homes often do not have electricity. Many people would have felt embarrassed about making such an error, but apparently Cashore did not. The CBC went ahead and alleged in its February documentary that the charity manufactured a kitchen overnight to deceive a donor. I've written elsewhere in the book about this echo chamber activity, but Cashore and Kelly's approach highlights once again the dangers when journalists repackage their competitors' work. In their rush to produce a constant stream of content and be first out with a new story or a fresh angle on an old one, too many journalists report as fact things they haven't taken the time to verify for themselves. No matter what you think about the Killburgers or the WE organization, you should question the way the media told the story, starting with allegations about the CSSG that were later shown to be false and continuing right up to the present moment. Along the way, too many reporters set their professional skepticism and sometimes even their ethics aside. The price we paid. This was the backdrop against which members of We Charities, executive and senior leadership teams gathered together on a video conference to watch The Price We Paid, an investigation into We Charities' rise and fall from grace in February 2021. They all understood there was a lot at stake, Mark recalled. We were all holding out the vague hope that the program would be a more even-handed presentation of how things had gotten so out of control. But deep down, we knew it wouldn't be good. Alarm bells went off when the face of Jesse Brown filled the screen that Mark Kelly was presenting him as a reliable source of information was almost comical because at roughly the same time, the CBC's top brass was accusing Brown of being a purveyor of fake news. On December 14, 2020, the network had issued a press release to refute a Canada Land article alleging that the president of the Canadian broadcaster lived in Brooklyn. The assertion by Canada Land, the release said, has been repeated by other media, including the National Post and La Devoir, and spread on websites such as the Post Millennial, Canada Proud, 
and true north. It is false. The statement went on to say that despite receiving clarification, Brown refused to issue a correction, a situation well known to We Charity. Nevertheless, he was a cornerstone of the Fifth Estate episode, which started out by recycling well-trodden issues with the Prime Minister, We Day speakers, corporate partners, and the funding model. But the show soon veered off in an unexpected direction. At about the halfway point, while the screen filled with footage of Craig in front of a massive machine digging deep into the ground, Kelly began to talk about the importance of clean water projects to the charity's Kenya mission. But he asked, was it always clear where the donor's money went? This was the first indication to the public that the CBC had a new theory to float, one that would eventually span three programs and several corresponding articles stretching through almost the entirety of 2021. The theory was that the charity was tricking its donors into funding the same project many times over, a practice known as double pledging. The CBC was implying fraud, a very serious charge that would soon be asserted even more directly by the Filthy State team. For now, Kelly offered as evidence several social media and online posts that he said showed different organizations appearing to take credit for funding the same borehole in the same Kenyan village. He singled out a group from Whistler and a student group from UBC saying both said they paid for a clean drinking water project in the Kenyan village of Kipson Go. When she heard this latest allegation, Dalau knew it didn't look good. I remember thinking people are going to believe what is being said because of who they are, the fifth estate. People are going to think they've done their research. They're going to think that their sources are legitimate. People aren't going to give us the benefit of the doubt. What are we going to do? But the CBC hadn't done its research. Kelly provided a voiceover that painted a picture of upset donors, but not a single donor was featured on camera. And the very people Kelly claimed were duped later said he was wrong. In lawyer speak, the purported victims said the crime never happened. The group from Whistler, for example, had donated money raised through an event called the Whistler Water One Climb. The brainchild of Stewart and Della McLaughlin, owners of Whistler Water, this event inspired almost 2,000 people to scale Grouse Mountain, overlooking Vancouver, and raised more than $100,000 for We Village's water projects in Kenya. The McLaughlins, who described themselves as heartbroken about what happened to We Charity, told me they are skeptical by nature and had traveled to Kenya 
to see we's impact for themselves. I wanted to see whether we was living up to its commitment around creating sustainable projects, understanding what it is really doing, seeing firsthand, Stewart explained. It was important for me to see the sustainability and to know that what had been built wouldn't fall apart after five years. The McLaughlins later publicly criticized the Fifth Estate's reporting and said they weren't in the least bit confused about how their donations were used. They understood that a water project is much more complex than simply drilling a borehole, and they supported the idea of pooling resources to create the greatest impact for a community. So what about that student group from the University of British Columbia? Mark Kelly specifically said he had talked to James Cohen, the head of that group, and Cohen said he'd been told the UBC donation paid for the entire borehole in Kipson Gold. There was just one problem. Cohen knew and understood that his group's $5,000 contribution was, in fact, funding a water kiosk connected to a six-figure infrastructure project. There were several unequivocally clear email exchanges from years earlier between the charity and Cohen discussing how his group's donation was one part of a much larger water project. In one email from 2015, for example, a WE Charity team member wrote, You are correct. A borehole does cost a lot more than $5,000. On average, the general cost of a borehole is $250,000. The larger infrastructure project is a substantial undertaking that involves drilling, piping, distribution points, pump machinery, and years of fuel, repairs, and community water education. What's disturbing is that the CBC was told about the comprehensive water projects prior to the broadcast and went ahead with the allegations anyway, despite also receiving the email exchanges between Cohen and We Charity the Fifth Estate never admitted its mistake, and the original broadcast was re-aired on at least four occasions. It still remains uncorrected online to this day. Other donors who were not explicitly referenced in the program also came forward to reject the CBC's claims. One older gentleman whose church had donated generously to We Charity many years earlier, spoke with Harvey Cashor, and then later relayed that conversation to Scott Baker. After speaking with Mr. Cashor, Scott told me, he thought he'd been deceived by the charity. He became convinced that he'd been told by the charity that he was the only donor to fund a specific water project. But when I searched our email records, I was able to send him exchanges from years ago, telling him that he was one of many contributors to the water project. 
The man apologized for jumping to conclusions. Mr. Cashore had put an idea in his head, and he misremembered the events. None of this was surprising to me. The CBC has a reputation for accurate and responsible reporting, and most people would assume that its journalists have done the legwork and are sure of what they're saying when they put forward a set of supposed facts. It's little wonder that some people began to question their own recollections, especially when trying to recall events from years ago. To make matters worse, Cashier and Kelly doubled down on the original claims in a segment broadcast on the CBC's The National in March, and their donor deception theory increasingly began to rest on allegations by Reed Cowan, whose outrageous claims before Parliament were the fuel that helped this fire take hold. Harvey Cashore later told many interviewees that Cowan's testimony had sparked his interest in the story. But as we saw in the last chapter, Cowan had acted with unclean hands and should never have been trusted as the source by anyone who calls himself an investigative journalist. The national segment accused the organization of deliberately raising more money than needed for a water project in the village of Osinatoy. One of the supposedly deceived donors featured was Donna McFarlane, a retired teacher from Mount Forest, Ontario. She was the first and only donor to be shown on camera in either this segment or the first Fifth Estate episode. Donna was an active WE fundraiser who had been to Kenya three times to see the programs with our own eyes. She told me in an interview that she understood the model and the work and was so disappointed with the CBC's portrayal of her views that she wrote a letter to the editor of her local newspaper to try to set the record straight. Unfortunately, CBC reporting took parts of my answers to certain questions and tacked the words onto answers to other questions in order to make it seem that I agreed with an attack on We Charity. When I told them that our experience had been completely positive and that We Charity had always sent us regular updates about the work our money was helping to finance, they kept repeating, but surely you were upset to learn that other groups also were fundraising for the deep bore well at Osinatoy, just as you were. In actual fact, we always knew other groups were raising funds for this community. McFarlane also wrote to the CBC ombudsman, Jack Nagler, describing the questionable practices that had been used in her interview. It would be very important to watch the entire raw footage of the interview and to listen to the voice not on camera, she said. This voice belongs to Harvey Cashior as he periodically heckles me in an attempt to unsettle 
or fluster me into agreeing with the negative statements he was putting forward. At one point, he even shoved printed materials in front of me and asked me to comment on it immediately. Mark Kelly and Harvey both guaranteed me that my very positive experience with We Charity would be the focus of my interview, but in actual fact, edited my words to serve their own purposes. McFarland's version of events was confirmed by Barb Cowan, also a retired teacher and member of the same fundraising group. She was present for McFarland's interview and subsequently complained to a high-ranking executive at the CBC. In her email, she described one troubling moment when both Kelly and Cashier were pressuring McFarling to watch a video of Reed Cowan. When she refused, Cashier took what Barb Cowan described as great liberties to summarize Reed Cowan's allegations. He clearly wanted to prove Reed Cowan's claim that We Charity essentially tricks donors into believing they're raising funds for one thing, then uses the money elsewhere, Barb Cowan wrote. She said she was shocked by the journalist's extremely biased conduct, which she called dishonest and deceptive. Other donors cited in an article on the CBC News website also came forward, writing an open letter to the CBC to object to what they described as misinformation. They said that the article did not fairly represent our responses to Kelly and Cashore's questions, and they voiced their frustration and disappointment in the CBC's reporting. Stuart McLaughlin was among those who signed the open letter, and on the day the national piece aired, he also emailed Mark Kelly to complain that the CBC continued to misrepresent where the money from his Grouse Mountain fundraiser had gone. I would have thought the journalistic standards of our national media outlet, and the national specifically, would be much higher than this, he wrote. Meanwhile, several former WE employees were also pushing back. Faith Batchelow, who'd worked on the donor relations team, but had left the organization five years earlier, wrote to Harvey Cashor to express concerns after doing an interview with him. She told him that she knew personally of many former staffers who had elected not to speak with him because they felt he was not open to reporting information that disagreed with the narrative he decided on. I never encountered a donor who was confused about where their money was going, how it was spent, or what it was doing, she wrote, not one. She implored Cashore to be transparent and tell viewers that there are many long-serving former employees who have said on the record that they don't agree with his donor deception theory. I hope you do your job and give the audience what it deserves, she concluded, which is all sides and the truth, not just your version of it. Of course, that never happened.
Given the political and media climate, it took courage for these people to speak out, both publicly and behind the scenes, against a story that Canadians had been led to believe was true. Despite this, the allegations continue to be recycled in other news outlets. The National Post repeated the CBC's already disproven but not properly corrected story about James Cohen declaring Reed Cowan isn't the first donor to express frustration regarding allegedly dubious We Charity donor recognition practices. Bloomberg combined Cowan's story with the allegations the Fifth Estate had whipped up for its own article about the supposed trail of grieving donors. The CBC returned the favor by picking up on Bloomberg's reporting on Cowan's story. Back and forth it went, with everyone reporting the same story and trying to construct an overarching narrative of a legion of angry donors who felt duped. But after nine months of negative reporting about donor concerns, there were no hordes of grieving supporters confirming the allegations and adding more. By September 2021, out of tens of thousands of total donors, just two had come forward with complaints. Reed Cowan and another donor to the same village. Both grievances concerned donor plaque recognition from approximately 15 years earlier and not the quality of We Charity's work or the impact of funding on the ground. We were stunned, confused, and utterly demoralized, said Robin Wizawadi, referring to herself and other Kenya staff members. These are people of very high personal integrity. We're being accused of horrible things when all we wanted to do was help people. Justice Mwenwa felt much the same way. This was taking a real toll on our team here in Kenya, he explained. They had already been through so much and had done so much for the communities during the pandemic. Many had dedicated their lives for over a decade or longer to We Charity, fighting to end the extreme poverty in the communities of their homeland. It was so demoralizing to hear journalists half a world away trashing all our hard work. Leading the Witness by the spring of 2021, Mark Kelly, Harvey Cashore, and the Fifth Estate team had advanced their narrative about donor deception in two national broadcasts and multiple online articles. But big and embarrassing holes had been poked in that storyline. The only donor featured on camera, Donna McFarlane, publicly complained about her words being manipulated and a witness to her interview, also a retired school teacher, wrote to the CBC to say Kelly and Cashore were selective with the truth. Eight donors who were presented as purported victims of deception 
wrote an open letter saying they had not been victimized, and evidence provided by We Charity directly refuted what the CBC put on the air about James Cohen and his group at UBC. To my mind, the story was dead, but Kelly and Cashier were undeterred and continued to hunt for disgruntled donors to corroborate the tale they'd already told Canadians. The question I've been asked by many people is why the Fifth Estate barreled forward. My answer is unsatisfying. I don't know. Maybe Kelly and Cashier thought they would eventually find deceived owners if they kept looking. Maybe they had invested too much time and professional capital in the story and had to salvage it even though it had fallen apart. Maybe someone in a corner office pressured them to keep pursuing a high-profile story that would attract viewers and boost ratings. It wouldn't be the first time that happened. In 2019, the Globe and Mail wrote about a staff revolt that took place when Fifth Estate producers proposed a series of episodes about a notorious killer. The idea, according to the Globe, was part of a bid to shore up the program's failing ratings, which had dropped by 16% from the previous season. An internal CBC strategy document shared with the Globe described a three-step process to build viewership including targeting viewers who are already deep in the conversation, offering a cluster of stories from different angles and creating social buzz. Sounds like a step-by-step recipe for what happened with We Charity. And We's experience was not isolated. In January 2022, a former Calgary medical examiner named Evan Matches, launched a $15 million lawsuit against the CBC, as well as Mark Kelly and Harvey Cashor, alleging that the Fifth Estate had defamed him in a January 2020 two-part episode called The Autopsy. What if justice got it wrong? The episodes fostered false allegations that Dr. Matches had caused or contributed to miscarriages of justice and wrongful convictions, the suit charged. It called the story deliberately dramatic and misleading and said it was the result of selective and incomplete presentation of opinion, conjecture, and facts calculated to present a distorted, inaccurate, incomplete, and wrongful picture of the circumstances. Even some of the CBC's own employees have raised concerns about how the broadcaster has been operating. In a widely shared Substack post published in January 2022, journalist Tara Henley said that she had resigned from the CBC over concerns about journalistic integrity. When I started at the National Public Broadcaster, 
In 2013, Henley wrote, The network produced some of the best journalism in the country. By the time I resigned last month, it embodied some of the worst trends in mainstream media. In a short period of time, the CBC went from being a trusted source of news to churning out clickbait that reads like a parody of the student press. Whatever Cashore and Kelly's reason for refusing to let go, their efforts were relentless. According to reports to We Charity, one donor group received 43 calls or emails from the CBC and felt they were being harassed. The Fifth Estate team also called one supporter's local church and another's ex-husband's workplace. John Knapp, a retired teacher who was involved with WE for more than 20 years, was one of the donors the CBC approached. Before retiring, Knapp had overseen a large and thriving WE club at his school, and he'd taken part in 11 trips to WE projects by himself, with students and with other educators. It's the only program I've ever been involved in in 35-plus years in education that I would consider 100% successful for every participant, he said. And that's astounding. But this wasn't what Harvey Cashore wanted to hear when he set up an interview with Knapp. Every time the former teacher said something positive about the organization, Cashore tried to steer the conversation back to the donor deception theory. Knapp was so concerned that he wrote to Brody Finland, the CBC's editor-in-chief, to complain that Cashier's approach was at best manipulative and at worst highly unethical. Other donors said their assertions were dismissed or their words twisted. So if Cashier and his team weren't listening to anyone who had good things to say, who were they listening to? It turned out that since at least August 2020, they'd been scouring social media to try to find posts where two or more donors appeared to be funding the same We Charity project. Kelly and Cashier had been offered the opportunity to speak with Kenyan government officials, local community leaders, WE Charity staff and donors, and independent auditors and investigators. But instead, they went with a keyword search on Twitter. Where was the due diligence? Did they cross-reference emails or other documents to determine whether these donors were fully funding a project or had ever been told they were by the organization. If so, they never showed any of those documents on their broadcast. Did they consider the possibility that they themselves might have misunderstood something when trying to interpret our donor's intention in the Twitter sphere? Was the CBC the one telling donors they had fully funded a project when the donors had no such view to begin with. That seemed to be exactly what had happened with James Cohen and eventually others.
after Donna McFarland's vocal statements about unethical editing by the Fifth Estate, some donors and former staff became so concerned about being misrepresented that they started to record their interviews with the CBC, and they later shared those recordings with We Charity. Once again, a pattern is evident. Harvey Cashore persistently kicks things off by presenting Reed Cowan as an example of donor fraud, elevating his credibility by explaining that Cowan testified in front of a parliamentary committee on this subject, then stating falsely that no one knows where the money went. He also fails to mention Cowan's extortion attempt. In these recordings, Cashore sounds less like an unbiased journalist and more like a prosecutor trying to persuade a jury to see a case his way. I think about every village that's part of the Free the Children system on my spreadsheets, he told one interviewee, referring to a tracking system he'd cobbled together. So on the left-hand column, is everybody I could find on social media or Twitter or a blog or whatever that stated they funded a school, you know, or a well or whatever. And so you know what I can say factually right now is I'm getting way more groups and individuals saying they funded a school, for example, in Arquette, let's say, or Mangaza, than schools exist. But this was hardly the smoking gun Cashore seemed to think it was. One donor emailed the CBC to explain that her friends had posted individually about a fundraising effort they undertook as a group. All of us collectively donated to the same project, she wrote. The pictures can be the same school or project because we were part of the same fundraiser. In other words, 10 individual Twitter posts about a donation was not proof that We Charity had funded the same project 10 times over. But that's exactly what Cashier appeared to believe. And that's the scenario he put to the people he was interviewing. This theory that donors had been duped became the cornerstone of the CBC's efforts over the next few months and eventually was the basis of a second full episode of The Fifth Estate, Finding School, number four, broadcast on November 18th, 2021. I'll come back to this episode later in the chapter. As they worked on this second story, Cashore and his team sent hundreds of emails to We Charity donors seeking anyone who might be confused about the organization's model. In one introductory email to a donor, a CBC staffer named Matthew Pierce wrote, Research we've done indicates that there is a discrepancy between how many schools were built and how many donors believe they funded a school. To that end, we are hoping to speak with donors in an effort to help us understand the discrepancy. 
In this way, Cashore and his team were not simply suggesting that they believe there may be a discrepancy. They were starting outreach by telling donors there was a discrepancy and asking them to react to it as though it were established fact. For example, in another message shared with me, Pierce copying Harvey Cashier asked a donor for any documents or emails which explain how we came to choose the school in Asinoni as one of those that you fully funded. Note that he didn't ask the donor, Mark Quatrochi, a motivational speaker who had cycled around the world to raise money for education, if he had fully funded a school. He just put those words in Quatrochi's mouth. The claim that donors were told they alone had fully funded a school, a water project, or some other program was essential to the CBC's narrative. But Quatrochi went back through his public communications and determined that he'd never claimed or even implied he had fully funded a school in Essanoni. You ask how we chose the schools that I had fully funded, he replied to Pierce. I think you may have the wrong idea. Did I say I fully funded them? I don't believe I said that. Can you please show me where I said that? If not, why would you attribute those specific words to me? My donations helped to fund those schools. I don't think the schools could have been built without those donations, but I don't think that no one else helped too. As I read these emails, it occurred to me that the public broadcaster seemed to lack even a basic understanding of We Charity's five-pillar model of international development. When someone is fundraising for a school, that does not necessarily mean they are giving money to construct a new school building. As any parent who has participated in a PTA, bake sale, or bingo night knows, schools require constant fundraising. When the organization was trying to meet the education needs of a community overseas, the actual school building was only one small piece of the puzzle. Those schools also needed teachers and books and chalk and paper. They needed security and maintenance. At the high school level, the students were boarded, so they needed places to live and meals to eat. The teachers also needed living accommodations and professional development opportunities. Money donated to the education pillar supported health and environmental clubs, inner school competitions, and initiatives to improve enrollment, attendance, and performance. In most cases, the cost of building and maintaining schools and then supporting the education pillar for five to seven years was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as surrounding communities grew, it wasn't unusual for the organization to go back to add additional educational infrastructure. The financial commitment didn't end when a single schoolroom was built. In fact, that was just the beginning. Also, seemingly lost on the Fifth Estate team 
was the representative model of fundraising used by countless charities, including we. Donors to Plan International may receive a photo of a specific child, but their funds are pooled with those from other generous Canadians to help an entire village. World Vision explains that when someone donates for a schoolhouse, the charity pools donations to provide schools in as many communities as possible. These charities encourage donations by highlighting concrete rather than abstract contributions. Similarly, We Charity talked about what it cost to build a school or a borehole as a way of expressing the value of meeting specific fundraising targets. This also created a visual that people could relate to. On social media, which the CBC relied on as a primary source of information, things sometimes get fuzzy because people might use shorthand terms like raising money for a school as a way to talk about fundraising for education in a community. This did not mean that a donor owned a piece of infrastructure or had some exclusive claim to it. In my view, the CBC's suggestion that people like Donna McFarlane should be offended to learn that others had contributed to the same project reflects a particularly cynical take on charitable giving. The idea that donors should be dissatisfied if they had no exclusive claim to a particular school or well in the developing world. In August 2021, when We Charity Foundation was relaunched as the entity that would manage projects in Kenya going forward, its website featured pictures and maps of 852 schoolrooms, including support structures such as libraries and administrative offices that the charity had built or repaired in the country over the years. Even today, anyone can look at the site and click on, say, ERCAT, a community featured prominently in the Fifth Estate's second broadcast. ERCAT's page shows photos of each of the village's 66 schoolrooms, which include classrooms, a kitchen, teacher accommodations, and a laboratory for the high school students. There's also detailed information about the community itself and the real-life impact of each of the five pillars. At the bottom of the page is a map showing the location of all 66 structures. This same information is available for the 29 other Kenyan communities where we is active. Dalal Awahidi provided all this information including the complete list of 852 newly built renovated schoolrooms to Harvey Cashor on August 16, 2021. In her accompanying email, she implored him to stop misinforming donors by circulating lower figures that were inconsistent with the data we have provided and to contact the organization if he believed the data was incorrect or incomplete. Cashor never replied to the message or gave the charity an opportunity 
to comment on his research and allegations. When he and Mark Kelly later went to Kenya to film footage for their broadcast, they visited ARCAT for themselves and declared that only 28 schools had been built. But they didn't count many individual classrooms or any of the support buildings, and they visited only one of four spots around the village where classrooms could be found. It was painful when they put up this screen of ERCAT and said, we think that there's been this many schools fully funded, and there's this many schools that we saw there, Robin later told me. And I was thinking, we sent you a map that had 66 structures on it, and you chose to go to only one location within ERCAT and then presented that as though it was a whole. A Diplomatic Incident On September 3rd, 2021, a year after he started reporting on We Charity, Cashore wrote to Robin to tell her that he was making his first trip to Kenya to see the organization's work for himself. He would be there the following week, he said, and wanted her help to set up interviews and arrange visits to schools. Robin welcomed the news and said she was happy to facilitate the trip, but she also had some advice for Cashore. I sincerely hope that you're coming with an open mind, she wrote, and will truly take the time to consider and understand how our development model works hear from the people whose lives have been directly affected by the changes in their communities and appreciate that while you seem to be focused on counting buildings, the sustainable change that is at the heart of what we do is about a lot more than structures. But that's not what happened. Cashier told Robin that he'd received an invitation to visit from the office of Naroke County Governor Samuel Tunai in August. Naroke County is home to Wee College, Baraka Hospital, and many of Wee's partner communities. The governor has since confirmed to Wee Charity that as far as he is aware, no such invitation was issued. Also concerning was that when a self-described local handler for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation got in touch with Tanai to set up an interview for Kelly and Cashore, the overture was anything but transparent. The handler, John Unjuru, omitted any mention of we and reframed the interview request as an opportunity and platform to market the county of Narok. He said the governor would be able to showcase the county as an investment haven for the wealthy and the go-to investment destination for those that want to be in the tourism sector. Njuro then asked the governor to get in touch with him. Njuro then asked the governor to get in touch with him so he could help swing the interview in his favor. It was an inauspicious start. And perhaps no surprise then that when Tanai eventually sat down with Kelly, the governor's staff recorded the whole interaction. 
His office later shared the recording with We Charity. The Fifth Estate, however, painted these actions as evidence that the governor was hostile to journalists and wanted to thwart the investigation. Had Canadian viewers known how the governor was approached, he was essentially lied to in the context of a show about whether We Charity told lies. They might have seen his actions in quite a different light. As the interview began, Tanai spoke about the challenges faced by communities in his region. He talked specifically about female genital mutilation and explained how the charity had had a noticeable impact on that issue through its Kisaruni Girls Boarding High School, which not only gave girls a chance at an education, but also helped many avoid becoming child brides. This is why I can stand up and say, we charity has done a good job, he told Kelly, calling himself a great promoter and supporter of we. But most of this part of the conversation ended up on the cutting room floor. Kelly had other things he wanted to talk about. What would you say, and I'm asking you just to think about this for a second, if more money was raised for Kenya and Naroke County than was actually spent in Naroke County? He phrased this as a hypothetical, just an interesting question for the governor to ponder. But he was in fact leveling a very serious charge without a shred of evidence to support it. When Tanai did not take the bait the first time, Kelly repeated the question toward the end of the interview, in a moment that did make it to air. The governor promptly halted the conversation. It was another in a long line of jaw-dropping developments for the people at WE. Without ever putting this question to the charity and providing an opportunity for clarification, Scott Baker said, the CBC was raising a very serious allegation about a Canadian charity in front of a foreign government official who could shut down the charity's humanitarian program in the country. Carol Marat told me that the moment sadly didn't surprise her. I felt like they were not sincere in coming to Kenya. They already had a preconceived show. They already knew what they wanted on the show, and coming to Kenya was just a smokescreen. Unfortunately, things would get worse from there, with the CBC crew almost provoking a diplomatic incident. In the days leading up to Cashore and Kelly's September 9th arrival, Robin had twice explained to them that because of the pandemic, access to government-run primary schools was severely restricted, and Cashore would need to get written permission to enter any school grounds. Although We Charity helps to fund primary schools, they are legally owned and operated by local governments. Robin wanted to ensure that the CBC team had what they needed 
because her slight hope was that once they saw the projects in action, their perceptions of the charity's work might finally begin to shift. Cashor assured her in writing that he had secured the necessary permission, so she began discussing plans for them to visit some schools a few days after their arrival. But on September 10th, Robin received another message from Cashor, who had already tried to go to a school and take photos of it, only to be turned away. After getting permission a week ago to film the exterior of the schoolrooms at Matoni, Cashier wrote, We were told calls were made and the permission was retracted. Robin took this as a thinly veiled accusation that she or someone else at WE was trying to block the visit. It didn't make any sense. This is what we wanted all along. Why would we make calls to block his reporting? She offered to help him fix the problem, but said she would need a copy of the written permission he told her he'd been given. She asked multiple times, but he never produced anything. In the meantime, Carol phoned local Ministry of Education officials and also sent an urgent letter asking them to reach out to the ministry's headquarters in Nairobi to get the CBC journalist special permission to enter schools. Robin told me that a few days later, she learned from staff at the Matoni School that when the CBC crew had shown up, the local handler, John Njuru, again, claimed he, Kelly, and Cashore were representatives of We Charity. The deputy head teacher didn't believe him and wouldn't let them onto school grounds. Imagine the outcry if reporters from another country had come to Canada at the height of the pandemic and tried to make their way onto school grounds with a film crew, all without permission. And Cashore and his crew didn't do this just once. Over the weekend of September 11th through 12th, even though the Ministry of Education still had not given the permission needed, the Fifth Estate team went from community to community, trying to bluff their way into each location, just as they had at Matoni. Locals told Robin that at some schools, the journalists claimed to be working with We Charity. At others, they suggested they were guests of Kenyan Ministry of Education officials. And in at least one instance, they brought a drone and flew it over schoolrooms to take aerial photos until they were asked to leave. This was not simply a case of someone cutting through unnecessary red tape. These government rules exist for a reason, Carol explained. There was a dire shortage in Kenya of vaccines, ventilators, and medical supplies. The CBC journalist had traveled in multiple airports on several international flights, were in hotels and taxis in the big cities. They arrived in Kenya, and the next day were running around going village to village in rural regions where people have not been vaccinated 
and have very limited health care if they got sick, all without following rules or taking precautions. In September 2021, only about 1% of rural Kenyans had been vaccinated, according to publicly available information. Herxon Ngeno, a representative from the Ministry of Interior and a prominent local leader, told the WE team that the authorities were flooded with complaints from the schools and surrounding communities. The Ministry of Education also confirmed that the CBC crew had never secured the needed authorization to begin with. They say they have permission from the government. They say they are donors to we, complained in Gino. They do not respect us. They lied to us to gain entry to our schools. We have never felt more insulted. The government wouldn't let the matter go without sanction. On September 13th, a regional representative of the Office of the President of Kenya issued a harsh reprimand to Canada's national broadcaster, citing its employees' misconduct and illegal actions, which included the criminal offenses of misrepresenting government officials, trespassing on government land, and flying a drone without a license. Governor Tanai similarly expressed his disappointment to the CBC. In a letter to Brody Finland, editor-in-chief of CBC News, he wrote, In view of the activities that ensued after the interview, and in particular the unethical conduct of the said CBC reporters, I am of the reasonable view that Mr. Njuduru's request to me was in bad faith and entailed an ulterior motive and purpose. Testimonial, Governor Samuel Tunai. Samuel Kuntai Ole Tunai is the governor of Narok County, Kenya. He studied public administration and international relations at the University of Nairobi and is a prominent business person active in livestock farming, agriculture, tourism, and real estate. He was born and raised in Narok County and is the proud father to four daughters. I fondly remember my first meeting with Mark Kilberger many, many years ago when he was a young man working to set up schools and community projects around the Maasai Mara, which was an area of greatest need. With challenges of illiteracy and female genital mutilation, as well as no job opportunities. I want to say that what We Charity is doing today is exactly what Mark said he wanted to do more than 20 years ago, except on a much greater scale, with an impact I couldn't imagine. They've changed the lives of young people who could have been murdered or fallen victim to early marriage and female genital mutilation, which still exist to some extent. Those girls and boys have an opportunity to go to school now. Their lives completely changed 
and they get the best lives for themselves and for their community. Before I became governor of Naroke, I joined the board of the non-for-profit Mara Conservancy, and I worked more closely with We Charity. I knew their work well, and I believe no other organization in Kenya has made the impact that We has for young people. In Naroke, 65% of the population is made up of young people, but they face many challenges. Most of them are school dropouts with no future. But thanks to we, these young people have a chance, and they'll be able to acquire the skills they need to become self-employed or seek work elsewhere. Because of Kisaruni Girls Boarding High School, our young girls have an opportunity to go to school. Thousands of girls would not have had this future because the government does not have these resources. And if you combine all other non-governmental organizations in the Roque County today, they aren't doing 5% of what we has. To see the negative publicity in the Canadian media makes me emotional because those people are doing a disservice and injustice to our boys and girls who today have a future because of We Charity. The vision that we had was really big. It was changing lives and changing communities. In time, the Fifth Estate's November 2021 documentary would suggest that all this drama was part of an attempt by We Charity to impede its investigation. This made no sense, of course, because the charity had been begging the CBC to visit and wanted Kelly and Cashore to see it all. Carol even pleaded with them to visit the purportedly fake kitchen. But to be sure that I was not missing any subtle form of heavy-handedness or some working of Kenyan connections, I asked each of Mark, Craig, Robin, and Carol a point-blank question. Did you do anything or learn of anyone doing anything to interfere with Mark Kelly and Harvey Cashore when they visited Kenya? Each said no. Despite this terrible start, Robin continued to try to ensure that the Fifth Estate crew would get an accurate picture of Wee's activities because she understood that they had the power to negatively influence the charity's fundraising efforts and its programs in Kenya. Carol even took the team on tours of Baraka Hospital, Wee College, and the Kisaruni and Nglot High Schools. She told me she was disappointed, however, when the camera crews seemed primarily interested in shooting any plaques they happened to spot, indicating an ongoing obsession with donor recognition. Following the tours, the CBC team did do a sit-down interview with Carol, but once again, things did not go the way the organization had hoped. Although she tried to describe the complexity of real development work, Mark Kelly 
kept repeating the same questions about money spent on bricks and mortar. The interview lasted just 16 minutes, and then Kelly thanked her for her time. But before they wrapped up, Cashore jumped in to ask about multiple donors for a schoolroom. The questions seemed more combative, and Carol told me she felt both defeated and deflated. He flew all the way to Kenya and asked one question. She said of Cashore, I explained over and over, but it did not seem like the answer he wanted. I'm not even sure if he wanted to talk to me at all. I told Mark Kelly, can you please talk to beneficiaries around here? Talk to patients at Baraka. Let's go to the high school. You can talk to some learners there. Pick any that you want to talk to. But of course he wouldn't. From what we understand, the journalist didn't make any effort to speak to any students, any teachers, or any community members. I do not know how to make them understand something they do not want to understand. Months later, she told me that the experience still rankled. I felt like the interview of me was just a way of showing they talked to an African on the ground. In the actual hour-long broadcast, Carol appears on screen for just under three minutes with Kelly speaking over her for a good portion of this time. Her entire interview is boiled down to 246 words. Given Carol's experience and the negative reports coming from Kenya, the WE team back in Canada had few illusions about what the Fifth Estate would say when the show eventually aired. But they weren't expecting what happened when producer Harvey Cashore finally reached out for comment. After explaining that the program had been taking a look at the primary schoolhouses that the charity had constructed over a period of more than 15 years and comparing that to the number of donations that were stated to have funded primary schoolhouses in Kenya, Kashor said he had just two questions to put to the organization. Did We Charity pay performers for their appearances on stage at We Days? And were expenses related to Craig Kilberger's wedding paid for by an entity called We Education, Inc.? The answer to the first question is no. And the answer to the second question is yes, except that We Education, Inc. was the personal company of Craig and Mark Kilberger. Its name was changed when Free the Children became We Charity to avoid any confusion. Mark, for one, told me he was dumbfounded. What did either of these questions have to do with Kenya? And how could Cashore still be asking about We Days after all this time. But an even greater concern was that he appeared to be reneging on a promise to interview Robin and give her the opportunity to respond on camera to the CBC's allegations as the person responsible for financial matters in Kenya. You have concluded 
that you do not need to include We Charity's perspective on financial matters, budgets, We Charity's decision-making process, or its allocation of funding, Mark wrote in his reply, given that you agreed in writing that these topics would be raised in Robin's interview. He also pointed out that in failing to provide questions or spell out allegations, the show was, in his opinion, not adhering to the CBC's own journalistic standards and practices. You have not provided us the fair opportunity to respond and counter what appears to be the very flawed fundamental premise of your story. Mark also questioned why Cashor would rush to broadcast when he knew that forensic accountant Ken Froze, whom Cashor himself regularly used as a source, was in the middle of reviewing the charity's Kenya financials, project allocations, and related expenses. The organization had retained Froze to conduct this review after hearing that the CBC's reporters had suggested to Governor Tanai that millions of dollars earmarked for Kenya had never made it to that country. And the charity had kept the CBC informed about the timeline for Froze's work. The review would be complete long before the conclusion of the fifth estate season. We are prepared and willing to share the results of his independent findings with you, Mark wrote. If you're going to suggest impropriety, as you have countless times to our donors, who have in turn rejected the premise, you must share with us the details and basis for that assumption. If you are indeed seeking the truth, we assume you will consider Froze's findings before you continue your reporting. Cashor responded by repeating his two original questions and ignoring the rest of Mark's concerns. Meanwhile, Robin was flummoxed by the CBC's decision not to interview her on financial topics that she was expressly told she would be given a chance to address, especially since those topics were at the core of the planned coverage and were issues she, and not Carol, was best positioned to speak to. Instead, the CBC told her, after already airing promotions for the show that revealed its conclusions, she would be limited to correcting anything that Carol had said. I had been waiting for weeks for Mr. Cashore to arrange a time for my interview so I could answer questions and ensure the truth came forward, Robin said. His earlier email was clear. We would want to interview you as country director. He lied to me. How could I not be given the opportunity to respond to any allegations about our work in Kenya? Later, she told me that the whole experience was like a nightmare. You have those dreams where you're shouting and shouting and nobody can hear you and you don't know why nobody can hear you because you're shouting really hard with all your might. I felt like they had taken the microphone away. They tease you with the microphone 
but then they take it away. I'm shouting. I have things to say. This is my personal integrity. This is our life's work. And who are you to silence me? The show went on. When the show finally aired, Robin was not the only one who felt like she was living in a nightmare. It took less than a minute for Reed Cowan's face to appear, a clear signal to me, as well as the Wii team, that the program was not going to be above board. In fact, before he'd even said his own name, Mark Kelly was asking, where did all the money go? This was apparently the CBC's new theory that donations made to support Wii's projects in Kenya had never even got to the people they were intended to help. Kelly's case rested on a review of online posts and the stories of two donors, Watson Jordan and Rukshan De Silva. Jordan is a former North Carolina teacher who, in 2015, raised money for We Charity in memory of his infant son, William. De Silva was in his final year at Iroquois Ridge High School in a suburb outside Toronto when he raised money for the organization in 2008. He and his classmates, he told Kelly, wanted to build a schoolhouse as their grad year fundraising initiative. Both men spoke on the broadcast of the deep personal connection they felt to the projects. Man, how impactful would that be for those kids to go from having no school to a school? Jordan remembered thinking when he first heard about Wee's Adopt-A-Village program. Kelly described the excitement Jordan felt when he got a package of materials telling him that his village would be our cat, and the show claimed his school would be school number four, the one referenced in the episode's title. De Silva also remembers the excitement when his class reached its fundraising goal. We went to actually donate the money in person at We Charity's office in Toronto, he told the Fifth Estate. We wanted it to be an ongoing partnership, we didn't want it to be a one-time donation. Five years later, when he was in Kenya on his own, he reached out to We Charity and asked if he could visit Pimbinyet, the village his school had donated to. There were no available staff members from the Toronto headquarters or the Nairobi office, but the organization helped him hire a driver and arranged for locals in the village to show him around. I met with the teacher, the civil recalled, and he kind of gave me a tour of the old school, and then they showed me the new school as well that was constructed with the funds that we donated. And I was really proud to see everything that we spent four years fundraising for. Just to see the fruits of that labor was incredible. For so many donors, Kelly told viewers, it was that connection to the bricks and mortar schoolhouse that mattered most. And that got the Fifth Estate wondering what they would find if they went to visit these villages for themselves. 
So we decided to go to Kenya and look for Watson Jordan's schoolhouse and Rukshin de Silva's and others. In Pimbiet, Kelly said, the villagers flew a We Charity flag, a sign of the gratitude they felt toward the organization. But Kelly was on a particular mission and apparently not focused on what the locals thought. He reported that we counted 20 schoolhouses, but our spreadsheet shows We Charity had received donations to fully fund 48. And with that spreadsheet in hand, he went looking for what he called the classroom that was funded by Rakshan De Silva. Did the young man know, Kelly wondered, that his schoolhouse was paid for by others? Back in Nairobi, we called him to ask. In fact, he did a lot more than ask. He told De Silva that the letters MPCF clearly visible on a photograph De Silva had taken when he was in Pembenyet back in 2013 stood for the Michael Pinball Clemens Foundation and that this was proof the former CFL star had already funded that school. A dejected-looking De Silva replied, if what you're saying is true, that's really disappointing. But here's the problem. The things Kelly said about both the number of schoolrooms in Pimbinyet and the school De Silva thought he had helped fund weren't true. There were 56 schoolrooms in Pimbinyet, far more than the CBC's own count showed. And Clemens and De Silva did not fund the same schoolroom. In fact, there was no evidence that the classroom De Silva took a picture of was associated in any way with his high school class. How then did De Silva come to believe he'd funded that particular room? Remember what he said to Mark Kelly while he was being shown around by a community paid teacher the man had pointed to the schoolroom De Silva later photographed and told him that was his school. It is possible that there was a simple miscommunication between the local teacher and De Silva. In Pimbinyet and elsewhere in the region, schoolrooms are typically standalone structures similar to the one-room rural schoolhouses historically found in Canada. All the individual primary school rooms are collectively referred to as Pimbinyet Primary School from the perspective of a local teacher who is asked, is this the school my high school in Canada helps support? The answer would be yes, regardless of which of the dozens of individual classrooms the donor was focused on. This local teacher would never have heard of Iroquois Ridge High School and would have had no way of knowing how fundraising allocations worked. This confusion could have been easily avoided had the Fifth Estate followed standard journalistic practices and allowed the charity to react to claims prior to broadcasting them. 
we would have told the CBC that the picture De Silva took was not of a schoolroom connected with his high school. Better yet, the organization could have spoken directly to De Silva and cleared up any misunderstanding before things escalated. All this focus on De Silva's photograph, though, made me wonder what else he might have captured that day. So I went to his Facebook page to have a look. There, anyone who's interested can scroll through the 53 photographs he posted in a folder helpfully labeled Pinbinyet Primary School. His beautiful shots document the scope of the work that was still taking place in the village years after De Silva's high school fundraising campaign. He shows derelict schoolrooms under renovation and bright new rooms packed with students. Desks are piled with books and papers, and blackboards are covered with diagrams and math equations. Outside, new bricks wait to be laid, and the soccer field waits to host the next game. Children are shown collecting water from a pump and lining up for lunch between classes. It was a story of a village transformed by the collective efforts of many, many people. I had to wonder how someone could look around at all that and not think to himself, I'm proud to have been part of this. I felt sorry for Rakshan Da Silva. He had a wonderful and real achievement that he now seemed to view as a sham. But I also felt angry at Kelly and Cashore for taking that sense of pride away from him. What proof did they offer him that he'd been deceived? Did they seek out the teacher who toured him around to ask why he said that particular school was De Silva's? Did they produce internal we documents showing that the schoolhouse had been funded three or four or more times over? Did they ask De Silva for proof that he was told his money was going to that specific schoolhouse and that his high school would be the only contributor to that building? Did they even take the time to look through his photographs, as I had done, to appreciate all the positive change we had brought to Pinbinyet thanks to people like him. In fact, a single smart question would have caused the whole story to unravel. Did anyone from We Charity tell you this was your schoolhouse? But then there would have been no outrage, no emotion, and no show. Well, okay, you may be saying perhaps De Silva had simply misunderstood or was told the wrong thing by someone who was trying to be helpful. But that doesn't explain what happened to Watson Jordan. He apparently had a document proving that he was told he'd fully funded schoolhouse number four in our cap. They even showed it on the broadcast. I thought the same thing, so I tracked down the exact document Jordan was sent and read it for myself. The first thing I realized 
was that it was a marketing piece, like a newsletter, that would be sent to multiple donors. It had been personalized, but only in the vaguest ways, with a header reading in loving memory of William Peter Jordan and two passing references to the Jordan family. The rest of the document, more than a thousand words, is the exact same text that would have been sent to numerous other donors who contributed money to support one of the five pillars in our cat. Still, I went through it with a fine-tooth comb. If this was the fifth estate smoking gun, I thought it must say somewhere that Jordan had fully funded schoolhouse number four or indicate in some other way that the school was his. But of course it didn't. The education pillar in Arcat is growing, the document read. We are so excited to report that the fourth new classroom at Arcat Primary School is now complete. This classroom will join the other three completed classrooms and will provide generations of students with the chance to learn and build a brighter future for themselves, their families, and their entire community. Next to the paragraph is a photograph of the long-sought school number four. While the most benign of captions, classroom four completed. Nowhere does it say this is your schoolhouse or you have fully funded this. Not even close. I can't blame Watson Jordan for misreading a document or misremembering what he might have been told years earlier. That happens, but it is fair to question the Fifth Estate's sincerity in reporting that Jordan was told he'd fully funded a school based on a document that says nothing of the sort. In fact, the report covers a range of other projects taking place in the same village. Agribusiness training, clean water initiatives, and mobile health clinics, to name a few. The document does not suggest that Jordan funded any of these projects. It simply reports on them in general terms, just as it did the schoolhouse. But that did not stop Mark Kelly from making the claim that somewhere along the way, we charity had told Jordan that he'd fully funded schoolhouse number four. Later, when promoting the episode on the CBC podcast, Front Burner, Kelly told host Angela Starrett that we charity had deceived Jordan, seeming to quote the charity he said, he was sent a picture. This is your schoolhouse, schoolhouse number four, in the village of Arcat. But Kelly had made up this quote plain and simple. To accuse We Charity of deceiving a donor, the CBC had to invent a deceptive statement. Once again, I felt sorry for Watson Jordan, as I had for Rukshan De Silva. I very much hope that the CBC did not exploit the Jordan family's loss of a child, given that Cashore often told potential interviewees that this story was inspired by Reed Cowan, who had himself lost a child. 
In the end, I've been deceived, Jordan said. Lying to people who've lost children about doing something good on their behalf, that doesn't seem like an awesome group of people to lie to. I agree, but who did the lying? I accept that after the air encounter with Mark Kelly and the Fifth Estate crew, both Jordan and De Silva felt deceived because they were told they'd been deceived. But there's a difference between feeling deceived and being deceived. And in both cases, the CBC produced no evidence to suggest that the men's money did not go exactly where they were told it would go. The vision they'd wanted to support of educating children in Kenya is a reality thanks to them and so many others like them. Watson Jordan's dream of going to Kenya and reading kids some of the books he never got to read to his son could come true tomorrow. The kids are there. The books are there. The schoolrooms are there. As Carol Mara said on the broadcast, it's about the impact, the lives that are touched every single day. Even Mark Kelly acknowledged this when he was promoting the show on CBC Radio's The Current. We Charity has been in the Maasai Mara region for two decades, making a difference, he told host Matt Galloway. When Galloway asked about the charity's impact on the ground, Kelly said it was significant. They've built a girl's high school. They've built a boy's high school. They've built a hospital. That's a critical lifeline for people in this impoverished region. The impact is real. Despite this admission, it seemed there was no information we charity could provide that the Fifth Estate wasn't prepared to ignore or misconstrue, even hard evidence. For example, although the organization supplied Harvey Cashore with pictures of all 852 schoolrooms it had built or renovated in Kenya, the Fifth Estate insisted on saying the definitive count was 360, a number we had given to Parliament months earlier for a very different purpose. That figure was expressly described in submission to Parliament as not exhaustive, as it did not include a wide range of structures and facilities, and was offered solely to demonstrate that the charity had made a tangible impact on the ground in Kenya. Once it had an exhaustive count, We Charity updated Parliament, providing the 852 number, along with images and maps. But because Kelly and Cashore's thesis was that they had identified a social media post suggesting 900 schools had been funded, they could not live with the charity's count. It would be too close. So what did they do? They pretended that the update to Parliament never occurred, omitted the not exhaustive language from the initial submission when presenting the charity's count to viewers and cut the portion of Carol Mara's interview where she explains that the 360 figure did not include 
many educational structures and was not comprehensive. The CBC then went one step further. On television and radio, Mark Kelly said that the charity's count of 852 schools and schoolrooms was inflated because it deemed latrines to be schoolrooms. Of course, that sounds suspect. But here's the problem. It's false. We charity specifically told the CBC that latrines were not included in the counts multiple times. In a September 22nd email, for example, Carol told the CBC, Please note that latrines are not included in these numbers. You had shared you were unsure of that in our interview, and I want to be clear on this fact. And after hearing Kelly mention latrines on the radio on the morning of November 18th, Robin sent an urgent message to the CBC. During the interview on The Current, Mark Kelly said, that we included latrines in the counting of the structures. We have made it clear in all of our communications with you that is not the case. And Carol further confirmed that with you when you met in Kenya. If that is mentioned in the broadcast, we ask that you please remove it. But when I watched the show that night, there was Kelly talking about latrines. In another brazen example, We Charity provided the CBC with a preliminary report from forensic auditor Ken Fries that addressed the organization's expenditures in Kenya. It had to be preliminary because the CBC would not wait for the final report before going to air. Even so, Froes had already reached a clear conclusion. All money we charity raised in Canada, and the U.S. for Kenya was used in Kenya. Case closed, right? Not so fast. Despite receiving the report prior to broadcast, Kelly still opened the episode by asking, where did all that money go? Worse still, the CBC then went on to misquote Froze reporting in an article discussing the investigation so that it appeared he said the opposite of what he actually did. Froze's report states that funds raised in Canada and the U.S. for Kenya over an eight-year period ending August 2020 totaled approximately $74 million and that we charity actually spent $83.8 million on Kenya during that same period. In other words, all the money designated for Kenya was spent on Kenya, and then some. In breaking it down, Froze explained that some costs for programming, including payments to third-party suppliers to support Kenyan operations and a share of administrative costs were recorded in Canada because they were paid for by We Charity Canada. The CBC article, however, omitted this key information and instead said only costs for We Canada, including administration, were $29 million. This may sound like nothing to some people, 
but it was a huge omission because it suggested that $29 million went to bloated we administrative cost and operations in Canada rather than being directed to Kenyan programs. The misleading edit by the CBC painted a picture of exactly the kind of bad behavior the charity was being accused of. The CBC's response to the organization's immediate demand for correction still baffles me. Diana Swain, executive producer of The Fifth Estate, said, I've reviewed the paragraph, and I'm confident that we make appropriate reference to Kenya. In fact, the story as a whole is about money raised for and spent in Kenya. The country is referenced in each of the three lines in the paragraph you cited. You have to wonder why misstate the record, then refuse to correct it. But the article remains uncorrected online at the time of writing. Finding their voices. For over 18 months, it often felt like we charity stood alone. There were private messages of support, of course, and the occasional op-ed or letter to the editor. But for the most part, the public space was dominated by fierce critics. The Fifth Estate's ongoing reporting changed the dynamic. Those who knew the charity's work best became, well, sick of it all. Donors began to revolt against the false media narrative. When I sat down in July 2021 with Dave Richardson, a member of one of Canada's most prominent philanthropic families, he told me he was going to be blunt, and he was. He said that in his view, the politician's conduct had been deplorable and despicable, and the decimation of the charity represented a part of Canada I never wanted to see. On the Kilbergers, Richardson was adamant. They did not let me down. They did good. The world needs people like Craig and Mark. By September, Richardson had clearly lost patience with the media as well the CBC in particular. After observing how the views of donors were misrepresented in the initial Fifth Estate broadcast and knowing there was more to come, he spearheaded an effort to organize those prepared to speak out publicly and push back. This resulted in an open letter to the CBC signed by 77 donors who collectively represented the majority of donations made to We Villages programs in Kenya. It was a who's who of Canadian business and philanthropy including the Right Honorable Kim Campbell, Michael Pinball Clemens, Gail Asper, Chip Wilson, Heather Skoll, Jennifer Torrey, Danielle Saputo, and John Peller. Signatories also included grassroots community organizers who had been fundraising for We Charity for years. They strongly rejected the suggestion 
that they had been misled about how their money was used. We Charity's development model is holistic, read the letter. It takes funding from multiple donors to ensure schools and school rooms are built and can deliver education to children over the long term or for a borehole to be drilled and succeed as part of a full community water system. The letter asked for assurance that our voices as major donors of the projects will be appropriately reflected and considered. In his cover email, Richardson noted that he was extremely concerned about continued inaccurate and unsubstantiated reporting by the Fifth Estate that is misrepresenting how we charity works. And on behalf of signatories, he said, we have stayed out of the fray until now, but we will no longer allow false reporting by the CBC to harm our reputations, or more importantly, harm the projects and the children in Kenya. It was a very emotional moment when Dave told me what he wanted to organize. He called it Me For We, and that made me smile, Craig recounted. We spent a lot of time feeling alone. So now, seeing so many who never lost faith and are willing to stand by us, I had no words. Educators followed suit. On September 22nd, Mark Burke, a retired teacher, formerly with the Toronto Catholic District School Board, submitted a letter signed by 50 current and former educators, including directors of education, school board administrators, trustees, and teachers, representing hundreds of schools and tens of thousands of students. As We Charity winds down its Canadian operations, we are struck by the impact that politics and media coverage has had on an organization that has created so much good, the letter read. We want to speak up in the hopes of preventing any further misleading reporting on We Charity's development projects. To my mind, this letter filled a vacuum. So little had been heard from educators throughout the CSSG affair and the subsequent critiques of the charity's international work. You would think that the CBC would be excited to feature this new perspective. These educators, all donors as well, told the broadcaster that what always appealed to us was that our support was not just about building empty schoolrooms, it was about ensuring that the schools and educators have the resources to ensure children can thrive. They understood, they said, that multiple donors may support the same school or schoolroom. In total, I'm aware of more than 125 We Charity donors and supporters who wrote individually or collectively to the CBC. Many of those donors had been approached by the CBC over the previous months and felt their voices or experiences were not accurately represented. They shared their emails and letters with the charity 
and authorized the charity to share them with me. In them, donors, big and small, sounded similar themes. People wrote about their personal experiences with the charity and what they had observed when visiting We Village's sites. Every letter I read also explained substantively and thoughtfully how their money was spent and how the development pillars worked. And the letters were highly critical of the CBC's donor deception theory. The messages I reviewed typically ended with a plea that the broadcaster include the donor's perspective in any future reporting. One letter penned by Ross Hines, the former Canadian High Commissioner to Kenya, Uganda, and Pakistan, a former ambassador to Rwanda, Burundi, Eritrea, and Somalia, and Canada's representative for the UN Environment Program, UN Habitat, and the UN Commission on Human Rights. As Canada's High Commissioner to Kenya, from 2006 to 2010, he wrote to Catherine Tate, the president of the CBC, I and my wife Vanessa gained extensive exposure to Wee's work and remarkable impact on communities. Both the physical infrastructure built, hospitals, schoolrooms, boreholes, etc., and local capacity created. Indeed, in my 35 years as a Canadian public servant, government executive, and representative in some of the world's most challenging developmental environments, I can't say I've encountered any more dedicated or effective ambassadors for our country and its values. Roseanne Letty, a registered respiratory therapist from Hamilton, Ontario, is the chair of mad for maddie a community group that raised funds for We Charity for approximately 12 years. In a pointed letter to Cashore and Diana Swain, Letty recounted traveling to Kenya to see We's work firsthand and assured the CBC that We Charity was always clear and upfront with us. We, along with I, would assume all donors to We Village programs know that our fundraising is meant to support systems, not simply the initial infrastructure, but ongoing operating expenses. As a donor to and supporter of We Charity, their model always made sense to me. I believe that every major charity in Canada operates this way. I know for certain that the M4M committee was aware of where our fundraising dollars went. She expressed dismay with the CBC's coverage of WE because it consistently excluded any voices supporting the charity, and she made clear that she was writing because she was worried about the consequences of what she perceived as the network's misleading reporting. The charity's ability to fundraise and the future of those humanitarian projects will be forever altered by your choices. I witnessed how kids in Canada begin to think outside of themselves because of the work 
that we did in Canadian schools, I hope that you carefully consider the consequences of your actions and what impact you are having on the lives of people in some of the most impoverished regions of the world. Finally, she made a simple request. If you choose to pursue your negativity toward We Charity, I hope that you would take at least a few moments to reflect on my words in your reporting. Her request was denied. John Levy, the former CEO of Mastermind Toys, wrote Brody Finland to express his concern about the nature of CBC's coverage of the charity and the resulting harm on our young people both here in Canada and within we supported communities in the developing world. Having visited We Villages sites and conducted his own due diligence, Levy said he knew the Fifth Estate was simply wrong when it asserted that donors had been deceived by the charity. If the CBC found a few people who were confused about how donations work, he said, this does not represent the majority of us who provided the most funds towards the We Villages program. Like the others, Levy asked that his position be clearly and sufficiently represented in any future reporting. I seek your personal commitment that if the CBC continues to report on We Charity that the perspective of the 75-plus donors is given equal weight and equal broadcast time. All these people were putting themselves out there because they felt the charity was being maligned. They were showing courage and sticking up for what they believed in. And all they asked in return was that their views be taken seriously and be given equal weight. None of it seemed to matter. The Real Scandal Even though all this correspondence arrived at the CBC before the Fifth Estate's Finding School Number 4 was aired, these voices received only the amount of airtime the CBC evidently thought they deserved, 83 seconds of the one-hour broadcast. And many of those seconds were taken up by Mark Kelly stating that the donor comments were part of an aggressive campaign to stop our investigation. He then flagged that at least one donor had previewed a letter to the president of the CBC with Craig Kilberger, a clue, Kelly called it, as to who was involved in the campaign. This was a clear attempt to leave viewers with the impression that the positive feedback need not be taken seriously. I'm sure it worked, but it struck me as ridiculous on two levels. First, there is nothing untoward in we and the Kilbergers engaging in dialogue with donors who wrote to the CBC. How could it be otherwise? Wouldn't it have been strange if Craig Kilberger was not involved in the effort to set the record straight? And second, what difference did it make? 
whether coordinated or not, 125 Canadian donors from all walks of life had told the CBC what they thought about the idea that they were confused about where their dollars went. These people asked their national broadcaster to tell their side of the story too, to include them, and every one of them had deeper familiarity with the work of the charity than Mark Kelly's key witnesses, Watson Jordan, Rukshan De Silva, and Reed Cowan. It is absurd to suggest, as the CBC implicitly did, that a slew of Canadian billionaires, business leaders, athletes, politicians, community organizers, and teachers were all so beholden to the Kilbergers that they sent on-the-record letters to the CBC that didn't really reflect how they felt. It was, to my mind, a convenient way to discount their voices and avoid disrupting the storyline. To offer an analogy, it was as though the CBC aired a documentary touting the perspective of a few climate change deniers and then mentioned, in a dismissive tone, that hundreds of climate scientists had offered a different take as part of an orchestrated campaign by environmentalists then cue the credits. Nevertheless, Brody Finland felt compelled to offer a defense of the CBC's journalism. In an article published two days after Finding School Number 4 aired, Finland argued the public interest case for the story insisted that the CBC adheres to some of the highest journalistic standards in the industry and noted the challenges faced by the investigating team. He then said that the letters to the CBC from donors were similar in ways that suggested a coordinated campaign. No mention of teachers, no mention of substance, and nothing about whether any effort had been made to figure out what was true and what was false. Finland concluded, by asserting that the CBC's journalist had acted as expected and had lived up to the five principles of our journalistic standards, accuracy, fairness, balance, impartiality, and integrity. This probably seemed like an unremarkable response to most readers. To me, however, it was profound because of what it didn't say. Could Finland have taken the same position? I wondered if he'd told Canadians about the lie the CBC's handler had told the Kenyan governor, or if he'd volunteered that the journalists tried to take pictures at Kenyan schools during a global pandemic without securing permission. Would he have been able to say what he said if he'd revealed that the CBC produced no evidence that anyone had been told they fully funded a school or borehole, or that the CBC misrepresented the number of schoolrooms on the ground in Kenya. Could he have claimed journalistic integrity if he'd acknowledged that purported victims, people like Donna McFarlane and Stuart McLaughlin, 
had rejected the CBC's claims and were standing with we? I couldn't help contrasting Finland's defiant stance with the attitude displayed by ABC7, an ABC affiliate in San Francisco. On April 8, 2021, the network's evening news broadcast included a nine-minute story called We Charity Under Investigation. The report featured Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev, each of whom provided their standard and now disproven negative commentary regarding the charity and played back all the worst coverage from Bloomberg, Reed Cowan, the Fifth Estate, and others. But unlike the CBC and most other Canadian media outlets, ABC7 made three rounds of corrections when presented with evidence that the claims made on its show were false or misleading. The station also agreed to delete the story from its web archive, and the journalist responsible deleted her social media post about We Charity. In the end, though the fact that the CBC has never corrected, its mistakes is less troubling to me than its decision to leave out the most worthy story of all by ignoring the voices of the thousands of children who attend we schools in Kenya and around the world. They could have told a marvelous and inspirational tale, but to my knowledge, the Fifth Estate team did not speak with even one student or teacher when they visited Kenya. They did not talk to any of the hundreds of thousands of patients treated at Baraka Hospital or any of the recipients of millions of meals distributed as part of WE's COVID relief program. No interviews with Mama Evelyn or other women entrepreneurs. All of this, it seems, was irrelevant. For me, reflecting back, it was sadly emblematic of the past two years and the whole sordid affair of a persistent refusal to take stock of the human cost of the political and media-driven hysteria surrounding We Charity, of a tragic fixation with bringing down the high-flying Kilbergers and no consideration of the collateral consequences for so many who had always had their feet planted firmly on the ground of amplifying every misstep of we so that very quickly people forgot to reflect with pride on all the good this homegrown institution had done and all the good it was positioned to do of putting partisan gain and media clicks ahead of service to society and most shamefully of peddling falsehoods and stoking outrage when in the end there was simply nothing there. Isn't that the real We Charity scandal? Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com. 
and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.